This program is part two in a multi-part series on the decline and fall of the ancient Roman Republic. If you happen to miss part one, now might be a good time to go check that out. If you don't mind picking a story up from the middle, though, or you already heard it, well then without further ado, part two of Death Rose of the Republic. It's hardcore history. In the year 82 BCE, the Roman government attempts what might be called an exorcism, an effort to rid their society of a malevolent force, at least. That's the way the current leadership of Rome views it. And their method for doing this involves the age-old practice of tomb robbing. The current government of Rome sends out official operatives to break into the final resting place of one of the greatest figures the Roman Republic ever produced. He's the guy that solves Rome's most pressing problems, but he solves them through means that will themselves prove fatal to Rome. A guy named Caius Marius, a man who died four years before this time, but whose ghost still haunts the Republic. And we're told that these tomb robbers operating in an official capacity break into the final resting place of this august figure. And they're not after valuable mementos that may be in the tomb. They're not after personal memorabilia. They're after what's left of the man himself. Now, this may have been ashes, but judging from statements made later, most likely it involved bones. Maybe bones that still had pieces of skin and clothing on it. The kind of thing that most of us would probably look down on and not want to handle. And yet, this specific job of these tomb robbers was to gather up what was left of this person, remove them from what was supposed to be his final resting place, and unceremoniously dump them into a nearby river. Now, this almost certainly was not done under cover of darkness in the night in a secretive sort of way because this exorcism required that people know about this for it to have the desired effect. Now, no one makes it clear in the sources what the specific point of this tomb desecration was, but it's not hard to infer all sorts of reasons that might have been behind it. A perfect one would be getting rid of the ghost, that this was a posthumous attempt to discredit this august figure. In the world of 82 BCE, Caius Marius might be dead, but he still had a whole lot of followers in Rome. He had political factions attached to him. There were even Roman troops under arms fighting for what was called the Marian cause. This was an attempt to turn their hero and their figurehead into an enemy of the state. There was a political reason to do this, to discredit this figure. Another possible reason was to deny the followers any place where they could offer sacrifices or pilgrimage or honor the dead. You can see this same sort of an attitude in other examples from Roman history. Just look at the two Gracchus brothers, Tiberius and Caius Gracchus. When they were essentially lynched by the Senate, the Senate had their bodies deliberately thrown into a river just like Caius Marius. 
And the point then, we're told by the sources, was to deny them a place where their followers could offer sacrifices and worship and honor them and make pilgrimages. This is not something confined just to the ancient world. In the last couple of decades, when the files from the old Soviet Union were opened up, and it was found out that they had possession of Adolf Hitler's body when people had wondered forever, you know, what had become of it. And in the late 1960s, the Soviet Union had the bones destroyed, crushed up, and yes, thrown into a river so that neo-Nazis and their ilk would have no place to venerate, you know, a dead hero. So there's a wonderful continuity in this idea that you are consigning someone to oblivion when you deny them a final resting place. And of course, there's the most human motivation, too, that you could throw out there, maybe an Occam's razor approach to why this was done. But how about revenge? The leadership of Rome in 82 BCE was one man. And that man was the sworn nemesis of Caius Marius, who had the good fortune of outliving his enemy, and so was able to have the last laugh. The ancient sources quote this nemesis, a man named Sulla, Lucius Cornelius Sulla, Lucius if you prefer the old anglicized Latin version, that he wants to be cremated so that no one will ever be able to do to his bones what he was doing to Marius's bones. And Sulla was a man who understood revenge clearly. He understood the motivations of this Caius Marius and understood that he was playing for the ages, that he cared greatly about his place in history and that his historical achievements count for something. What his greatest enemy was doing was undercutting this legacy. Nothing could be more like, you know, sticking the knife in and twisting it, if you had the values of a Caius Marius, than to try to extinguish your memory from the historical records. There's one last thing that might have been going on to explain the motivation of Lucius Sulla in doing this to his great enemy. He may have been trying to lay blame. He may have been trying to say that all these terrible things that had happened during this great man's lifetime were his fault. And if that's the case, he doesn't deserve to be venerated in some illustrious official tomb. He deserves to be treated like the Gracchus brothers and others who tried to overthrow the Roman system. The Roman system, though, was the big part of the problem during this era. And the fact that it became a contest steeped in blood should have surprised no one. John F. Kennedy once said that those who make peaceful change impossible make violent change inevitable. And it seems to me that quote works really well with the story of the Roman Republic in the period right after the Gracchi brothers are lynched by the aristocratic senatorial forces who see them, it seems like, as a combination of like Che Guevara and Fidel Castro trying to 
remake the Roman system, maybe even get power for themselves on the backs of the people. The people seem to see these reformers more like a Martin Luther King-Robert Kennedy combination. There's a lot of analogies you could use. It's hard to go back in time now with the sources that we have and get a clear view of the two Gracchi brothers and who they were and what sort of forces they unleashed in Rome. A lot of the sources you use from this period are writing from the Roman Empire period, and it's interesting for them to look back on a system of a sort of a representative government and see, in some cases, an almost loathing of what they see, you know, a kind of a, whew, aren't you glad we didn't live in those kind of times when the people could get out of control like that? I mean, it's interesting stuff, but you have to realize that the Grocky brothers, I would love to have some, you know, stuff right from that period if we could, you know, get our hands on some of the scrolls. I have these these fantasies of a basement somewhere in Italy or the former Roman world being broken into by construction workers next week and thousands of Roman scrolls being found. And the great thing about that was you wouldn't have to spend years translating an unknown language. People could read that right away. It'd be great to have some accounts from this era and get a different view of both the Gracchi brothers and the people who killed them in what was Rome's first real outbreak of political violence. And all the sources agree that this political violence breaking out, Roman lives being snuffed out by other Romans for political disagreements, was a benchmark in Roman history, a clean break. And who knows what the Senate felt in terms of, you know, what sort of bullet they think they dodged by snuffing out the lives of these two reformist brothers. But had they had a time machine available to them and could have gone forward just a little while in Roman history and see how things were going to go, they would have begged to put the Gracchi reforms into effect. Some pain during their lifetimes would have saved the Roman system immeasurable suffering. See, the Gracchi brothers, for whatever they really were, were addressing real problems in Rome, problems that would prove to be fatal if they weren't addressed, and for all sorts of day-to-day -day reasons, it seems like the Senate of Rome didn't want to address them. They were too painful now to implement in terms of, you know, what the senators were going to have to do and what their supporters were going to have to do, then, you know, the perceived downsides down the road. Think of what the Gracchi brothers were trying to deal with. First of all, the most dangerous problem in Rome, the fact that there weren't enough Roman soldiers. That's a huge problem. And that's a systemic problem in Rome because they have a rule. And the rule is, and the tradition is, that Roman landholders are the ones who make up the fighting class, the legionaries. If you don't have landowners, you don't have legionaries. And there are estimates from this period that there were as few as 2,000 private Roman landowners. That's a disaster for the Roman military at a time when the Roman military is getting involved in you know, more wars than you can even keep track of. Now, because there aren't enough soldiers, Rome's doing another thing that the Gracchi brothers wanted to reform. They're leaning more heavily on other Italian allies, these peoples who are part of the Roman coalition, I guess you could call it, but don't have Roman citizenship. They really want Roman citizenship because there are all sorts of advantages to it, but the Romans, even the poor ones, don't want to give it to them because they don't want to share their citizenship because, well, it's perceived to be a valuable thing and more valuable if you don't have a lot of people in on it. Yet these allies were being asked to carry more and more of the burden of Rome's conquests while sharing in less of the rewards. And one of the burdens that they're being forced to carry more and more is, hey, we don't have enough landholders to fill out the legions, so we're going to need even more troops from you. 
You can see time and again senators bringing up this question of, well, listen, the Italian allies are really mad. We need to do something to make things better. And the Senate, you know, shooting them down left and right. As a matter of fact, one of the big mistakes Caius Gracchus is supposed to have made was trying to champion the cause of the Italian allies because even his poor Roman supporters didn't care for that idea. But that was a real problem, and it would explode into a, you know, an existential threat to Rome not a generation later. Another problem Rome had was also based on how well it was doing and the prosperity coming into Rome. It was bringing alien peoples in large numbers into the Roman society, hostile, angry alien neighbors right into the Roman society. It was bringing in slaves in untold numbers. There's that line that all roads lead to Rome. Well, think of what's on those roads during this period. It's commerce, it's slaves, it's loot, it's booty, it's art, it's people, all coming into Rome, basically. Everything just flowing towards that area. And the people that are making money off this are the class that Caius Gracchus used to you know, balance out the senators. This class that was already doing well as the business class of Rome, the equestrians, they're sometimes called the knights. Caius Gracchus pried them away from you know, being allied with the Senate by promising them even more money, by making them the tax farmers, for example, for the empire. That's sort of a contractor's job in Rome. They didn't have an IRS. They had several private, maybe we would call them companies today, that would bid on the deal, saying, you know, I'll get this much money from Asia. Well, I'll get this much more money from Asia. And the one that promised the most was picked. They got to go to the province. They got to squeeze any amount of taxes they could get out of those people out of them. They owed Rome whatever they'd bid, but anything they squeezed out of that province on top of that, they got to keep. Historian Ronald Syme tries to explain the differences between these senatorial elites and this class known as the Roman knights. Here's what he says, quote, The knights preferred comfort, secret power, and solid profit to the burdens, the dangers, and the extravagant display of a senator's life. Cicero, a knight's son from a small town, succumbed to his talents and his ambition. Not so T. Pomponius Atticus, the great banker. Had Atticus so chosen, wealth, repute, and influence could easily have procured a seat in the Senate. But Atticus did not wish to waste his money on senseless luxury or electoral corruption, to risk station, fortune, and life in futile political contests. Averse from ambition and wedded to quiet, the knights could claim no title of civic virtue, no share in the splendor and pride of the governing class. For that surrender they were scorned by senators. They did not mind. Some lived remote and secure in the enjoyment of hereditary estates, content with the petty dignity of municipal offices in the towns of Italy. Others, however, grasped at the spoils of empire. As publicani in powerful companies, farming the taxes of the provinces, and as bankers, dominating finance, commerce, and industry, the publicani were the fine flower of the equestrian order, the ornament and bulwark of the Roman state. End quote. So you get an idea of how this class was beginning to dominate everything that was going on in Rome in a way they couldn't have done a few generations before. They're looking at places that Rome doesn't yet control and seeing all the business opportunities there. I mean, in Asia, they're taxing the people so hard that people are going into debt and being sold as slaves. A generation from now, when Rome's leaders will go to their provinces in Asia and ask for them to commit young men to the legions to fight for Rome, the client king there will plead, you know, that he can't. 
They've all fallen into debt because they can't pay your taxes, so they've all been sold into slavery. Hence, we have no people to give you. I mean, just listen to what the mining efforts, for example, in a place like Spain were like. Because you couldn't always tax the people of these areas Rome took over. Because sometimes they didn't live in big cities and they weren't used to taxes. So in places like Spain, they got the loot for Rome out of the earth. And they did it in a way that sounds so thoroughly modern. It's actually a little shocking to hear. This is author Tom Holland's description of the Roman mining efforts in Spain. Quote, The mines that Rome had annexed from Carthage more than a century previously had been handed over to the publicani, who had proceeded to exploit them with their customary gusto. A single network of tunnels might spread for more than a hundred square miles and provide upwards of 40,000 slaves with a living death. Over the pockmarked landscape, there would invariably hang a pall of smog, belched out from the smelting furnaces through giant chimneys, and so heavy with chemicals that it burned the naked skin and turned it white. Birds would die if they flew through the fumes. As Roman power spread, the gas clouds were never far behind. End quote. Holland actually says that mining on this scale would not happen again until the Industrial Revolution. When you think about the scope of operations as vast as that, you begin to sense that this Roman business class was so powerful it would be strange to think of them not having a significant influence in the Roman Senate. And after all, that's what Caius Gracchus was trying to do when he empowered them. So he got them that influence. I'm not sure he foresaw how they might use it, though. You see, Rome's business class began to use the Roman Senate in ways that would personally help them. That's human nature, isn't it? And one of the ways they saw that it might help them is by taking over lands that Rome didn't own yet. The business class could look covetously across the seas and see territories that would be a wonderful addition to their commercial empire if only Rome actually owned them. Well, when you have enough influence in the Senate, when money begins to change hands, the possibilities of actually owning them becomes more than just a dream. Now, one of the wars that historians believe this business class helped engineer gets Rome in trouble. It becomes a little like Rome's version of the U.S.-Vietnam War. Rome will get involved in a conflict in North Africa, in a place called Numidia, which used to be right next to the Carthaginian Empire before the Romans destroyed the Carthaginian Empire. When they did, they put a client king in charge of Numidia and went home. Well, eventually this client king died, and the heirs begin to fight over who gets Numidia. Rome comes in and settles this. The Senate has a settlement and divides the territory amongst the heirs and goes home. The heirs don't like the agreement, get into a bloody war as family members, people being tortured to death by other family members, and riots and struggles break out between the Numidian people. And in some of this stuff, some Roman traders and commercial people are killed in the fighting in Numidia. This becomes Rome's version of the Gulf of Tonkin incident, which allowed the U.S. to intervene more heavily in Vietnam. Well, this allowed the Roman Senate to get involved and have a reason to go into Numidia with troops. They were not prepared for what happened. You see, during this time period, Rome is a world conqueror. The legions sweep everything before them. The problem is, is these Numidian people, some of the best cavalry in the ancient world, who fought in a guerrilla-type style and who lived in a rocky, arid, parched desert broken up by 
incredible mountain chains, and who knew it like the back of their hand, would not sit still and fight fairly. Well, that's the way a Roman would look at it. They simply kept the Romans from ever nailing them down. They were led by the guy the wars are named after, a person named Jugurtha, who quickly becomes like a Geronimo figure leading his Apache guerrilla fighters in these inhospitable mountains where a Roman soldier could die of thirst trying to find where these people were. And the war went on and on. It was typical guerrilla warfare in the sense that the casualties were low level and it was a trickle of them, but more people were probably dying due to illness than the actual fighting. There were desertions. The people back in Rome were getting frustrated. They would send general after general after general to this area. No one could ever get the job done. There were all sorts of charges of corruption going on. Here's Will Durant's version of the events. Quote, When Jugurtha, grandson of Massinissa, tortured his brother to death and tried to deprive his cousins of their share in the kingdom, the Senate declared war upon him in 111 BCE, with a view to making Numidia a province and opening it up to Roman commerce and capital. Jugurtha bought patricians to defend his cause and crimes before the Senate and bribed the generals sent against him into harmless activities or a favorable peace. Summoned to Rome, he opened his royal purse more lavishly and was able to return unhindered to his capital, end quote. The Romans were fed up with what looked to be rank incompetence on the part of their political generals. Remember, their generals were politicians. Once you got this particular job, either consul or proconsul, you were put in charge of the armies. And these people looked corrupt. They looked like they were taking bribes from the locals to allow certain people off the hook. It began to be an embarrassment to the Roman idea of what their government was. And so they were looking for a solution. And that's when the sources start to say, like you could read Plutarch, and he says that Roman legionaries began to write letters home saying that this whole thing was not going to end until you put Caius Marius in charge. This is when Marius first appears in Roman history in a meaningful way. One of the things that sets Marius apart and that proves that this Roman political system was one based on merit is that Caius Marius was an outsider as far as the patrician aristocratic class was concerned. He's a regular guy. He's from the equestrian class, which Americans would probably call the upper middle class. So he's not a total down-and-outer from the slums, but the Roman writers like to slur him by pointing out that his parents worked for a living. He was the sort of figure that the people in the aristocracy tended to not want to associate with. He was kind of boorish by their standards. He was a ruffian. He was uneducated. And, you know, the big thing that was sweeping Rome at this time was Greek culture. They had moved in and taken over parts of um, Greece, and one of the spoils that they brought back with them were the marble statues and the paintings, which have now for the most part disappeared, and the books and the dramas and plays and the actors and the teachers. They just brought them all back to Rome. So this was like the latest fad. And all the upper classes were having their children educated in Greek thought and philosophy, and they were going to the Greek plays, and they were becoming, by Roman standards, you know, they were getting some edification. But that kind of edification was not for a guy like Caius Marius. This was a man who was known to stand up and walk out of theaters if the actors started performing a Greek play or song. That, by the way, would have just confirmed on the part of the blue-blooded nobles what a boorish, uncultured ruffian this Gaius Marius guy was. But 
By doing that, he was aligning himself with a lot of other conservative Roman thinkers who believed that all this Greek culture was undermining the traditional Roman Stoic values, feminizing them all. And, you know, in a sense, all that Greek stuff seemed like opera to the common man in Rome. And when Caius Marius walks out of there, it's a little like he's leaving the opera to go down and have a beer with the regular folks. And that was something that played well with the populares and played even better with his troops. Gaius Marius was a soldier's soldier. His ability to be one of the guys was one of the major things he brought to the table in terms of being a great general whose troops fought fanatically loyally for him. And the sources who may not even like him go out of his way to point out that this endeared the troops to him. Listen to what Plutarch says about him and how he had this complete opposite sort of a reaction on the part of the troops from these aristocratic Romans who would bring the lavish tents on campaign with them and, you know, the sumptuous food for them. And, you know, they would order the troops to do things because, remember, the people that commanded these Roman armies were their politicians, too, often their richest people. They were used to living a certain way. And on campaign, they expected to live as much like that as they could. Gaius Marius wasn't like that. And here's what Plutarch writes about him, quote, it is the most obliging sight in the world to the Roman soldier to see a commander eat the same bread as himself, or lie upon an ordinary bed, or assist the work in the drawing of a trench, or raising a bulwark. For they do not so much admire those that confer honors and riches upon them, as those who partake in the same labor and danger with themselves, but love them better that will vouchsafe to join in their work than those who encourage their idleness. End quote. The soldiers that fought under Gaius Marius got a nickname. They were called Marius's Mules because he worked them so hard. The reason they didn't seem to mind so much is because Gaius Marius got right down in there and did it with them. Gaius Marius always had a common touch relationship with the people, and it started very early on in his career. First of all, he comes up from, essentially, a group that would have been considered closer to the people than the aristocracy. He starts his job fighting in the ranks of the common soldiers, and we're told that his ambition, that all-important component to the Roman governing system, you know, the ambitious fighting between gifted individuals is going to create through competition the best sort of leadership. Caius Marius fights in the army of Scipio Africanus, the famous Punic Wars general. This is the Scipio, by the way, from the Third Punic War, the one who destroyed Carthage in 146 B.C., his hero ancestor in the Second Punic War was the guy who battled Hannibal, also Scipio Africanus. In any case, Marius is supposed to have come to the attention of his superiors the first time by killing a barbarian king in single combat while his Roman superiors looked on. That'll always get you a nice recommendation in the Roman society, by the way. You kill a barbarian king in hand-to-hand combat and... There's very little that's better. If the Romans have a ribbon or some sort of decoration for that, that's the most coveted one. Plutarch cites an occasion which fired his ambition and gave him a feeling that he could be anything in Roman society when a flatterer to Scipio Africanus in Spain said something to the effect of, General, what will Rome do once you're off the scene? Where will it turn to for its great generals? And out of nowhere, in a room full of Roman soldiers, he's supposed to have clapped Gaius Marius on the back and said, perhaps here. That, along with what a prophecy is supposed to have told him, and people in the ancient world often put a lot of stake in those prophecies, made Gaius Marius think he was destined for great things. So you get that happening, you get Scipio's, you know, clap on the back and the blessing, and the next you hear from this Gaius Marius guy is he's running for 
the role of tribune. Remember, the tribune of the people is one of those positions that represents the interest of the regular folks in Rome. There's 10 of them at a time during this period. And Caius Marius apparently needs the help of one of his, you know, godfathers in this Roman system, as many of these people do to get the job. And he goes to this one guy whose name is uh, Metellus and says, would you help me get the job? And he says, yes, I will. Um, Marius is elected, tribune. And then he proceeds to take on the super powerful of Rome right away as a nobody. Remember, in Roman politics, especially during this period, you anger the wrong people and they'll find you dead in an alley somewhere. And yet this young Caius Marius guy who had already killed a barbarian king in single combat pushes this law that's going to be one of those reforms for the lower classes, sort of the kind of thing the Gracchus brothers would do. And the consul at the time, which is like their version of the president or the prime minister, and they have two of these at the same time, the consul, who's a rich, powerful man, says, no, we don't like that idea. And so Marius, this young nobody who just got the job, who needed strings pulled to get it, says to the consul publicly, if you don't support this, I'll throw you in jail. And then Marius turns to his benefactor, the godfather guy who got him the job, this Metellus character, and says, listen, you know, you supported me for this job. Are you going to support me over this law? And the Metellus guy says, no, I'm with the uh, consul on this. I don't agree with you on this law. And Marius looks at him and says, then I'll throw you in jail. The Senate backed down from this nobody What does that tell you about his personality right there? And he's one of those rare figures. You can actually go look at a statue that's purported to be the figure of Caius Marius. And it's one of those rare stone cuttings where you actually can feel the personality of the person coming through. At least I can. I feel like there's something that comes to life in the way he even looks where you get a feel for who this guy was. And I've always compared him in my mind. He always seems like that character of General George Patton, not the real General George Patton, but the character played by George C. Scott in the movie Patton. And there's a scene that always makes me think of Caius Marius, the one where Patton is rushing through Italy and his his army is making record-breaking time, and then all of a sudden the column gets held up at this little Italian bridge, and the actor playing Patton runs up to the front of the bridge to see what the holdup is, and his soldiers simply point to an old Italian male peasant trying to get his stubborn donkey to move off the bridge, and... George C. Scott gets this incredulous look in his eyes like you would let that hold up this major historical event. And he walks up to the donkey, pulls out the pearl-handled pistol, shoots it in the head and has his men just dump it over the side and then just says, let's get moving. That's Caius Marius. He's the ultimate can-do guy. One of the books I read for this particular show was an interesting one that kind of tried to play the Roman Republic as a corporation. It's called Rome, Inc. And in that book, Caius Marius was portrayed as sort of the ultimate hatchet man CEO that you bring in when your company is in trouble and needs someone to make the tough choices. And, you know, you may not like him, you may not like the tough choices, but if you need fixing, you bring in Caius Marius. And the first time Rome seems to turn in that direction that we hear of in the sources is in that frustrating, you know, demoralizing guerrilla war that they're trying to fight amid the deserts and rugged mountains of North Africa against the Numidian people. Marius is there. Lucia Sulla's there, too. There's a lot of famous figures on the ground in North Africa trying to win this war. And Marius is there because his benefactor got him the job of working under him, this Metellus character. And early on in the sources, you get a first look at this hyper-ambition that Marius brings to the table. 
Plutarch says he's arguing with everybody, including Metellus, about his ambition. And he gets accused by Metellus of being, you know, just having an eye on Roman politics and everything you do is geared toward that. And Marius has no problem throwing even Metellus under the bus when it comes time to translate what's going on in North Africa and the bad conditions there into political advantage for himself. Marius is accused by Metellus of wanting to be consul, and that's exactly true. And he went back to Rome, quickly used the situation in North Africa to his advantage, as pretty much every Democratic or Republican system politician running during an unpopular war has. He said, the generals are incompetent, the situation looks dire, put me in charge, and I'll put an end to the war. He's recorded as specifically having said that he would bring Jugurtha back to Rome in chains, or he'd kill him himself. That's the can-do guy, the hatchet man, at work. He sounded a lot like that George Patton character, and not only did he win the consulship, but in an unusual move that was sort of a sign of things to come with Marius, he went directly to the People's Assembly and got them to vote him the command of all the forces in Africa. What a quick rise to power for a knight's son from the countryside. Marius would go back to Africa, have a major battle with the Numidians, but then fall into the same situation that all the previous generals had fallen into, where he can't wrap the war up, can't get his hands on these guerrillas. What eventually ends up happening is that one of Marius's subordinates in a daring James Bond-style covert operation that's fabulous in and of itself, goes into enemy territory and bribes one of Jugurtha's cohorts to betray him. And the way the sources portray it, they kind of have this young nobleman riding into the Roman camp in Africa with, you know, this Geronimo-like figure that they've been trying to get their hands on for years, you know, trussed up in ropes or chains. The young nobleman that finally brings this you know, renegade, as the Romans see it, to heal, is Lucius Cornelius Sulla. And this would not be the last time he would steal Marius's thunder. And you wonder if Marius, through the use of some fortune teller or soothsayer, could have had, you know, a virtual Roman time machine and go into the future and see that this was the guy who in the future would take his bones out of his tomb and throw them into a river so he wouldn't be remembered. One wonders whether... Anyone would have heard the name Lucius Cornelius Sulla after that moment ever. That doesn't stop Marius, though, from going back to Rome with Jugurtha in chains, celebrating a Roman triumph and basically claiming credit for the whole thing. Now, at some point during this time period, and it's unknown exactly when, Gaius Marius does the most important thing he'll do in his whole life in terms of the impact it will have on the Roman Republic. He reorganizes the army. And he does it in a way that solves that terrible problem Rome's been wrestling with for more than 100 years. How do you fill out the legions if nobody owns land anymore and you have to own land to serve in the legions? Gaius Marius does not do it like the aristocratic Gracchi brothers did it, where they were trying to fix society at various levels and make sure that people's civic duty was still involved. They were trying to remake society in a complicated way that took a lot of other people you know, to agree to to get the job done. Gaius Marius was like... General Patton on the bridge, he was just going to shoot the donkey in the head, throw him overboard and keep going. He solved the land crisis problem by doing the simplest thing possible. He just waved it. He just told 
the soldiers that he was recruiting that they didn't have to own any land at all. I don't care that the rule is you have to own land. I don't care that the rule has always been you have to own land. We take volunteers, and when we win, because I'm such a great general, I'll pay you then. And I'll pay you in loot, I'll pay you in booty, and then I'll go up to the Senate and declare that, you know, you deserve land because look how well you fought. In other words, instead of people fighting because they owned Roman land, they were now fighting in order to get Roman land. This fundamentally changed the whole relationship between the Roman military and the Roman state. And it became, you know, if the Gracchi brothers were the fuse that got lit that eventually detonated the Roman Republic... Caius Marius provided the gunpowder, and he did so by creating armies that had allegiance to their generals instead of to the Roman state and people. When the landowners fought for Rome, they fought to protect their own land, and they fought for the people and senate of that nation. They already had what they were trying to defend. When these volunteers, after this period... These were called the Marian reforms, what changed the Roman army fundamentally. When they were fighting, they were fighting for whatever this particular general had promised he would do for them. That's the guy that they needed to pay attention to. Because, you know, if he went away, no other general is going to necessarily honor whatever deal this guy made with you. Marius's troops cared about Marius, and they were loyal to a fault. This is the era where generals, who also happened to be Rome's top politicians now have armies with them who owe allegiance to them. That's gunpowder in the Roman system. Nevertheless, this army was so needed and so important at this time period, it would be hard to argue that this deal with the devil that Marius didn't even understand he was making, after all, he didn't know how later Republican Roman history would turn out, he probably saved Rome in the interim there probably would not have been a Rome around to fall apart a generation from now had Marius not reorganized these legions in a way that both gave Rome soldiers and, to be honest, made better legions. One thing about the Roman forces was that when they would have a war and they would call up these farmers from the fields and these landowners who brought their own stuff, their own weapons, their own armor to battle, is that Roman armies usually started off their wars quite ineptly. They weren't really cohesive yet, hadn't got used to fighting you know, with the guy standing next to them, nor to the general and his particular, you know, way of approaching things. As the wars went on, though, these same soldiers staying, you know, in uniform and under the colors longer would become better and better and better at their jobs. And usually by the end of all these wars that Rome fought during this period in its history, the armies had become, you know, masterpieces in the hands of long-serving generals. And then the war would end, and all those people would go back to their farms, and the institutional memory, you know, that that military force had built up over time would be lost. With Marius's new design, these people were not going back to their farms because they had no farms. Their job was soldiering now, and you didn't lose that institutional memory. This became a career. So these troops were better, and they were needed. Because as the war with Jugurtha in Numidia was winding down, a new threat appeared from the dark reaches of the unknown world in the north. At least two new people that the Romans had been almost completely in the dark about appeared on the scene, and they were so numerous that they created an instant threat to Rome's survival. This wasn't some, you know, version of the U.S. war in Vietnam that 
Rome had been fighting in Numidia now. Now we were talking about the end of the Roman world, and it appeared overnight. It's funny, but when we modern people are lucky enough to discover some new, you know, human group of individuals that have managed to escape our detection all this time, there'll be some little hunter-gatherer group of a few families or whatnot in the middle of a rainforest that we'd never perceived before, and they always try to run away, and we try to get pictures of them, and it's sort of a little hunt on our part. Imagine, though, a time, and this was not unknown in most of human history, when you didn't know about people's that existed beyond a certain distance away from where you lived, and they could appear on the horizon in amazing numbers. In other words, not knowing about giant groups of, you know, human nation states, if you will. That's what happened to Rome right during this period when Marius was busy celebrating his victory over Jugurtha, and news kept reaching Rome about this new people that had appeared from the north. Two new peoples, in fact. The ancient writers called them the Cimbri, and the others are called the Teutons. And no one to this day knows who these people were. Another interesting facet of history is all the debates you will find on various sides trying to you know, nail down what the ethnicity of these two groups were. There's a school of thought that these groups are German, and Rome had had almost no contact at all with Germanic peoples by this time. You know, one historical writer talks about this as almost a little foretaste of what would eventually bring down Rome, you know, centuries later when Germanic descendants of maybe these people would overrun the empire, the Western Empire. But those people would have seemed positively civilized compared to the people that the Romans were now perceiving were moving south towards Italy. They were said to be of amazing stature. These were giants. And their hair was so blonde that the Italians compared the little children of these tribes to old people because they had that sort of white, blonde, almost gray-looking hair with gray eyes, we're told. It is clear from what sources there are that this was terrifying to the Romans. And these people, you know, the Romans were used to dealing with barbarians and Gauls and Celts, the other people who it's sometimes asserted these Cimbrian two-tones, you know, were either related to or composed of, Celts or Germans. But the Romans had had lots of contact with Celts in their history, and they weren't afraid of Celts like they were afraid of these people. And one reason to be afraid of them was there was a ton of them. The ancient authors, who normally exaggerate, you know, numbers beyond belief anyway, say that there were 300,000 fighting men and they were moving southward with their families in covered wagons, their children, their wives. So you have nations, essentially, if we were going to use the modern term, on the move. And that 300,000 fighting man number is actually thought by historians to maybe not be that far off. In the ancient world, that is, you know, that's a, that, there are no invasions like that that you can point to. Mongol invasions, Hun invasions don't have 300,000 fighting men. Imagine not even knowing this people exists, and by the time you figure out, oh, yeah, there's a new people up there, they're near you, and they're numerous and well-armed and dangerous and huge and white-haired, and the Romans were afraid. And they got more scared when they sent a few armies up there only to get them just smashed, and I mean smashed, and Roman armies had not been used to being smashed in a long time. Remember, it was a generation before this time that they went into Asia and took on one of Alexander the Great's successors and tore his army to shreds and killed tens of thousands of them and lost, you know, 192 guys or whatever it was. It was like the U.S., you know, in one of the Gulf Wars. And the Romans had come to believe that that's just how they were. And now this new people that they hadn't even perceived a couple of years before, smash them, just smash them, and then smash them again. 
and again and again and again, five times. That'll destroy a superiority complex pretty fast. And each of these battles had its own sort of nightmare attached to it. And one of them, the barbarian tribesmen left a Roman consul dead on the field of battle. Imagine having your president killed in a battle by the enemy. In another, they're supposed to have killed 80,000 Roman legionaries in the worst disaster since Hannibal's era. And in addition to that, an extra 40,000 camp followers, the people that are the servants and the water getters and the food preparers and the launderers of the legionaries. Now, those numbers are almost certainly inflated, but it was a lot of people no matter what. Imagining 120,000 people, you have to think of the largest football stadium you've ever heard of, emptied of everyone in it, and having them slaughtered, you know, in the most bloody, brutal fashion with edged weapons in a space not much bigger than a few of those football fields put together. The modern mind reels at the image, you know, that you can't even conjure in your head. We can't imagine what that's like. Nobody within five, six, seven human generations has any idea what anything like that looks like. I've seen a couple of rare photos of unburied bodies in the eastern front of the Second World War where you can, in your mind's eye, sort of get an approximation of what it might have looked like, but that's all black and white stuff. To see that in color, well, let's just say there's no one alive has any idea what this looks like. One of those sites from the ancient world that our ancestors would not have been overly shocked to know about, and yet no one today can even, in their mind's eye, picture what this must have been, what kind of a scene this was. And some of these people, you know, the sources make no bones about it, liked it. Some of our ancestors were very comfortable in those kind of settings, which makes you, you know, just realize once again what an interesting species we human beings are once you strip the veneer of civilization off us. And Plutarch's descriptions, these are among some of his best battle descriptions, and he's not a battle writer, but you get the real feel from him about what fighting these people were like and how panicked the people of Rome were. It's these wars against these two tribes of either Germans or Celts or maybe some hybrid version of the two of them that will get the people of Rome turning to Caius Marius over and over and over again and giving him the job of consul over and over again because the people of Rome were simply not willing to mess around with amateurs. They wanted their version of you know, General Patton, and they sent Caius Marius and his brand new army of now soon-to-be professional soldiers. And by the way, there's another angle to this that's kind of interesting. Not only is Marius sort of this champion of the lower class, or he always acts like I'm more of a man of the people, but making an army out of the lower classes created a different army in that sense, too, because armies before had always been composed of stakeholders in the state. Landowners, we make up the army. Now the army was made up of poor people, and that made it a little different. As historian Michael Crawford writes, quote, The Roman poor were now armed and alienated from traditional patterns of behavior, as the ready resort to violence from 103 BCE shows. End quote. So this army of now professional soldiers, armed by the state, drilled by the same general, and eager for rewards that were only going to be paid upon success, came back to Italy to face this amazing threat. Here's how Plutarch describes their appearance. He starts the story from when Jugurtha is captured. Quote, Jugurtha's apprehension was only just known when the news of the invasion of the Teutons and the Cimbri began. The accounts at first exceeded all credit as to the number and strength of the approaching army, but in the end reports proved much inferior to truth, as they were 300,000 effective fighting men, besides a far greater number of women and children. 
They professed to be seeking new countries to sustain these great multitudes, and cities where they might settle and inhabit, in the same way as they had heard that the Celts before them had driven out the Turanians and possessed themselves of the best parts of Italy. Having had no commerce with the southern nations, and traveling over a wide extent of country, no man knew what people they were, or whence they came, and thus, like a cloud, burst over Gaul and Italy. Yet by their gray eyes and the largeness of their stature, they were conjectured to be some of the German races, dwelling by the northern sea. Besides that, the Germans call plunderers Kimbri. End quote. He goes on to speculate his ideas of where these people might have come from. And when you think about it, at that time in history to a people like the Romans, this is a national security question. You know, our national security agencies try to spy on potential rivals. The Romans had a huge disadvantage. There were potential rivals out there that they didn't even know existed. These two tribes were not known to the Romans only a decade previously. And here they are, the biggest threat to Italy in any of these people's memory. And while the Romans always respected the Celts as brave, they rarely gave the Celts this kind of publicity. Here's what Plutarch says about these two fierce people, quote, Their numbers, most writers agree, were not less, but rather greater than what was reported. They were of invincible strength and fierceness in their wars, and hurried into battle with the violence of a devouring flame. None could withstand them. All they assaulted became their prey. Several of the greatest Roman commanders with their whole armies that advanced for the defense of Transalpine Gaul were ingloriously overthrown, and indeed, by their faint resistance, chiefly gave them the impulse of marching toward Rome. Having vanquished all that they met and found an abundance of plunder, they resolved to settle themselves nowhere till they should have raised the city and wasted all Italy. The Romans, being from all parts alarmed with this news, sent for Marius to undertake the war and nominated him the second time consul, though the law did not permit anyone that was absent or that had not waited a certain time after his first consulship to be again created. But the people rejected all opposers, for they considered that this was not the first time that the law gave place to the common interests, nor the present occasion less urgent than when, contrary to law, they made Scipio consul, not in fear for the destruction of their own city, but desiring the ruin of that of the Carthaginians. End quote. In other words, what Plutarch is saying is that the people broke their normal tradition of not nominating a guy to be consul two times in a row, or when he wasn't even there to run for office, because it looked like disaster was about to strike. And the last time they did it was during the Punic War, so there was some precedent. In any case, Marius took his troops, trained them for two years, because he got a little reprieve. Both of these tribes broke off from heading right down into Italy so they could plunder some more neighbors on the way. They did not exactly have a coordinated, organized foreign policy. And when Marius finally, in the year 102 BCE, ends up going after one of these tribes, again, Plutarch's description is otherworldly as to what the Roman soldiers had to deal with. It was like fighting, you know, aliens to them, or the darkest, most deep and mysterious of the Indian tribes, or the African tribes, you know, if you're one of those people in a foreign country, a foreign land, fighting, you know, people that just, you have no frame of reference for. At some point, both the Kimbri and the Teutones noticed this army, this new Roman army that's arrived under Caius Marius, that they haven't destroyed yet. And Plutarch says they get together and they agree to meet, you know, by where Caius Marius is setting up a camp. And the Roman camps were like 
small cities, fortifications practically. You would not want to run up against one. And they made it every night. They carried on their backs what they needed, and they laid the camp out the same way every night when they would stop after marching. And in no time, they went from having an an area that was hardly defensible to one that had a moat and a fence and guard towers and a wooden stockade. And, you know, it took up a big area of space. And yet it gave the Romans much more security every night than most other armies of their day had. And Gaius Marius made a big point of doing that really well. And that's when the first of these two big tribes finds the Romans. Plutarch writes that, the two tribes, the Cimbri and the Teutones, were supposed to get to Marius at the same time, but that their speeds differed. He writes, quote, The Cimbri were a considerable time in doing their part, but the Teutons and the Ambrones, with all expedition passing over the interjacent country, came soon in sight, in numbers beyond belief, of a terrible aspect, uttering strange cries and shouts. Taking up a great part of the plain with their camp, they challenged Marius to battle. He seemed to take no notice of them, but kept his soldiers within their fortification, and sharply reprehended those who were too forward and eager to show their courage, and who, out of passion, would need to be fighting, calling them traitors to their country and telling them that they were not now to think of glory and triumphs and trophies, but rather how they might repel such an impetuous tempest of war and save Italy. Plutarch says he kept his soldiers along the towers and walls of the camp and had them watch these people. He had them watch how they used their weapons when they were practicing together, how they fought, how they behaved, how they spoke. He was a great general, and one of the things he realized was the longer you become accustomed to this strange and fierce and foreign people, the less frightened of them you will be. You know, the point is made over and over that these people were scary to the Romans. They were barbarians of the highest caliber, and everything they did seemed strange and foreign. Marius told them to just sit there day after day and just watch them. And you'll soon realize that not only are there men, but you'll see the flaws in their style. You'll see their strong points and their weak points. And it's pointed out over and over again that it was a tough job to keep these brave, patriotic Romans from simply saying, to hell with you, I'm going out and fighting these people. Believe me, the barbarians were heaping all sorts of abuse verbally on the Romans. And sometimes it would be in one of those sorts of physical ways that you wouldn't need to understand the language of the enemy to get the meaning of his insult. Eventually, after trying to attack the Roman camp unsuccessfully, the Teutons just decide that they're going to bypass it and continue on to Italy. If Marius won't fight, they will just go and do what they want in the Roman legionaries' homeland. And as a matter of fact, as the column of barbarians streaming away and past this camp go by, they yell out all sorts of insults, and the one that Plutarch specifically records is they keep yelling up to the Romans watching from the wooden watchtowers if they have any messages they'd like to give to their wives, implying, of course, that the German barbarians will be seeing them before the legionaries will. Plutarch says that the barbarian column marching past the Roman camp was so long that it took six full days to pass by it. And that's when Caius Marius allowed his troops to go after the Germans. Once the Germans had passed by the camp, the Roman legionaries follow them. Now, I keep calling the Cimbri and the Teutons Germans. That's my own history fan biases coming into play, and my apologies for that. I always learned that they were Germans. Many of the primary sources I'm using in front of me call them Germans. It's so easy to slip into that potential mistake, because as we said earlier, the Teutons and the Cimbri may have been Celtic. 
They may have been a mixture of Celts and Germans. They certainly had some Celts with them, like the Ambrones. So if I call them Germans in the future, you know that we're talking about a group of people whose ethnicity is still undetermined. This is the people that Caius Marius is following around, building his fortified camp a little ways behind every night, waiting for an opportunity to get them into a good battlefield location. And eventually, we're told from the sources that he does. The battlefield supposedly has all sorts of advantages for the Romans. It even has water. Only one problem. The water's on the far side of the battlefield, with the enemy between the Romans and the water source. Plutarch thinks this may have been another sign of what a great motivational general Marius was. Because when his troops came up and asked him what they would be able to do for water, Plutarch says that Marius responded, quote, There, he said, pointing to the river, you may have a drink if you will buy it with your blood. End quote. His soldiers then ask if he won't please attack the barbarians before all their blood dries up. The actual fighting between the Romans and this massive German tribe, which also has a Gallic tribe with it now called the Ambrones or Ambrones. I couldn't figure out the proper pronunciation for their name. And so they're together, and the actual fighting breaks out, as it often does in these ancient battles, in an unexpected and unplanned way. What Plutarch says, and I should emphasize, we don't know if any of this happened. This is the story as Plutarch relates it. But he says that the camp followers, some of them decided that they were going to go get water for the soldiers, and they pick up some weapons, and they go to the area where the water is sneaking over there to try to not get the enemy's attention, but that the enemy is already there, and the Ambrones Celtic tribesmen who are working with these Germans are bathing and eating and drinking and maybe drinking alcoholic beverages. They may be drunk. And here's what Plutarch says. Quote, Now a great company of their boys and camp followers, having neither drink for themselves nor for their horses, went down to that river, some taking axes and hatchets, and some two swords and darts with their pitchers, resolved to have water, though they had to fight for it. These were first encountered by a small party of the enemy, for most of them had just finished bathing and were eating and drinking, and several were still bathing, the country thereabouts abounding in hot springs, so that the Romans partly fell upon them whilst they were enjoying themselves and occupied with the novel sights and pleasantness of the place. Upon hearing the shouts, great numbers still joined in the fight, and it was not a little difficult for Marius to contain his soldiers, who were afraid of losing the camp servants. Plutarch goes on to say that these were all... Ambrones or Ambrones, Celtic tribesmen. He says there were 30,000 of them, and they were the ones over here bathing and using this area. And he says they quickly sounded the alarm and hurried up and grabbed their weapons. And he says, quote, These, though they had just been gorging themselves with food and were excited and disordered with drink, I think that means Plutarch says they're drunk, nevertheless did not advance with an unruly step or in mere senseless fury, nor were their shouts mere inarticulate cries. But clashing their arms in concert and keeping time as they leapt and bounded onward, they continually repeated their own name, Ambrones, either to encourage one another or to strike the greater terror into their enemies. Of all the Italians in Marius's army, he writes, the Ligurians were the first that charged. And when they caught the word of the enemy's confused shout, they too returned the same, as it was an ancient name also in their country. The Ligurians always used it when speaking of their descent. This acclamation, bandied from one army to the other before they joined, served to rouse and heighten their fury, while the men on the other side strove, with all possible vehemence, the one to overshout the other. End quote. 
What Plutarch is saying is that as these two sides advanced upon each other, they're screaming out their war cry. And the most common war cry always seems to be the actual name of the people, you know, shouting. There are other war cries, of course, but this has to be the most popular one. And they're heading towards each other, ready for a clash. But then the Ambrones tribesmen get disordered by the water in the river, breaks up their ranks, keeps them from keeping shoulder to shoulder and close to each other. And the Ligurians just fall right upon the group in front. So instead of having an ordered formation, they're disordered by the river. The Romans take advantage of it and start attacking the head of the barbarian column. Plutarch says, quote, The river disordered the Ambrones before they could draw up all their army on the other side of it. The Ligurians presently fell upon the van and began to charge them hand to hand. The Romans, too, coming to their assistance and from the higher ground pouring upon the enemy, forcibly repelled them, and most of them, one thrusting another into the river, were there slain and filled it with their blood and dead bodies. End quote. Then Plutarch points out that those who run away from the battlefield end up facing something that you'll hear over and over in the history against the German tribes, a foe that's both unexpected and heartbreaking to deal with. For all concerned, Romans and tribespeople, they run into their own women. Here's what Plutarch says, quote, Those that got safe over, not daring to make head, were slain by the Romans as they fled to their camp and wagons, where the women, meeting them with swords and hatchets and making a hideous outcry, set upon those who fled, as well as those that pursued. The one as traitors, the other as enemies, and mixing themselves with the combatants with their bare arms, pulling away the Roman shields and laying hold on their swords, endured the wounds and the slashing of their bodies to the very last with undaunted resolution, end quote. Now, there are stories of women doing this in various kinds of tribes, but the Germans were most known for it. If these Ambrones were Celtic, they may have been doing it you know, as a tribal custom, they may have picked it up from the Germans, but over and over you will read stories of how the German women do not put up with their men fleeing the battlefield. One of the reasons they're there is to inspire them, and Tacitus, writing, you know, hundreds of years later, will say that the German women still go to the battlefields and yell encouragement on their men, heap abuse on them when they're not doing well, doctor their wounds if they return from the front lines for a while, and at the same time, when the battle's going poorly, scream out what'll happen to them if the enemy captures them and mistreats them and hurts their children. And then often, if their men flee anyway, they take up the swords and start, you know, fighting everyone. In this case, Plutarch says that the Ambrones women killed their own men and then took on the Romans too, physically ripping the shields off the Roman legionaries, stopping sword blows by catching the blades with their bare hands. There's almost no way in an ancient battle where the wives and children of one side are actually on the battlefield to avoid a genocidal situation. Not if the, you know, enemy wins. And in this case, the Romans did. And in addition to a lot of Ambrone's tribesmen, a lot of women and children died too. Unfortunately for the Romans, there was still a huge army of Teutons in the hills around them, and somewhere nearby the unconquered Cimbri as well. Plutarch says the Romans weren't even able to make their normal camp at the end of the battle because it's exhausting and people are wounded and you're just trying to pull your own people out from under piles of bodies and recover, don't have time or energy to make a normal camp. They end up having a weird night out there on the battlefield. Plutarch describes it. 
Quote, After the Romans were retired from the great slaughter of the Ambrones, night came on, but the army was not indulged, as was the usual custom, with songs of victory, drinking in their tents, and mutual entertainments, and, what is most welcome to soldiers after successful fighting, quiet sleep. But they passed that night, above all others, in fear and alarm, for their camp was without either rampart or palisade, and there remained thousands upon thousands of their enemies yet unconquered, to whom were joined as many of the Ambrones as escaped. There were heard from these, all through the night, wild bewailings, nothing like the sighs and groans of men, but a sort of wild beast-like howling and cursing, joined with threats and lamentations rising from the vast multitude and echoing among the neighboring hills and the hollow banks of the river. The whole plain was filled with hideous noise, insomuch that the Romans were not a little afraid, and Marius himself was apprehensive of a confused, tumultuous night engagement. But the enemy did not stir either this night or the next day, but were employed in disposing and drawing themselves up to the greatest advantage. End quote. So these Romans, trying to get what sleep they can, you know, with bandages and trying to cook food among groaning wounded and heaps of corpses and the most hideous sights you can imagine. And this whole time, the tribal enemy is screaming and howling in the hills and threatening and the, you know, the sound is echoing amongst the plains with all these dead bodies everywhere and ghosts seemingly haunting the whole thing. There are lots of examples in history where small groups of people can get trapped by tribesmen who are in the hills and you can hear the drums beating and there's this ominous sense of foreboding. Rarely do you have a situation where you have an army of tens of thousands of killers frightened for their lives because an even bigger army is in the hills surrounding them, screaming threats and wailing and howling to the moon, essentially must have made the hair on the back of the neck of every one of these Italian soldiers stand up. And you wonder how much the Romans would have been worrying about what would happen if they fell into the hands of the people that were screaming in the hills around them. Because after this time, the ancient geographer Strabo would write about what the Cimbri did to prisoners, and one gets a pretty good feeling that rumors and all sorts of imaginings must have been making their way through the Roman camp fires and the ranks, the scuttlebutt of what the enemy they're fighting were like. Here's what the ancient geographer Strabo writes about the Cimbri and how they dealt with prisoners of war. Quote, Their wives, who would accompany them on their expeditions, were attended by priestesses who were seers. These were gray-haired, clad in white, with flaxen cloaks fastened on with clasps, girt with girdles of bronze, and barefooted. Now sword in hand, these priestesses would meet with the prisoners of war throughout the camp, and having first crowned them with wreaths, would lead them to a brazen vessel of about twenty amphorae. And they had a raised platform which the priestess would mount, and then bending over the kettle, they would cut the throat of each prisoner after he had been lifted up. And from the blood that poured forth into the vessel, some of the priestesses would draw a prophecy, while still others would split open the body, and from an inspection of the entrails would utter a prophecy of victory for their own people. And during the battles, they would beat on the hides that were stretched over the wicker bodies of the wagons, and in this way produce an unearthly noise. End quote. Certainly these Romans must have thought it would be better to die fighting these people than to fall into their hands. 
Plutarch says, again, if you can believe him, he goes into so much more depth than people like Appian and some of the other sources for these battles, but he says that while waiting for the Teutons to essentially come to the battle and fight, Marius occupies himself finding places to lay ambushes, places to hide his men, and he finds a steep wooded valley where he can hide 3,000 of his soldiers in a place that will eventually be in the rear when the tribesmen attack. And then he puts the rest of his soldiers on a bit of a sloped hill so that when the Teutons attack, they'll have to attack uphill. And then to make sure that they attack, when they appear, he has his cavalry go down and taunt them and tempt them, which is more than the tribesmen's ego would allow them to handle. Plutarch says that everything worked as planned. The Teutons arrived... They charged the Roman cavalry. They ran up the hill, were facing the Roman legionaries waiting for them. They were already getting the worst of it when what was left of the Ambrones charges and tries to turn the situation around. And that's when Marius unleashes those 3,000 men he has hidden in the rear, and the great slaughter begins. Plutarch says, quote, For Marcellus had not let slip the opportunity, but as soon as the shout was raised among the Romans on the hills, he, setting his men in motion, fell upon the enemy behind, at full speed, and with loud cries, and routed those nearest him. And they, breaking the ranks of those that were before them, filled the whole army with confusion. They made no long resistance after they were thus broken in upon, but having lost all order, fled. The Romans... Plutarch says, pursuing them, slew and took prisoners above 100,000, and possessing themselves of their spoil, tents and carriages. He says that the inhabitants of that region made fences around their vineyards with the bones, and that the ground was so saturated with rotting corpses, soaked with the rain of the following winter, he says, that the next season yielded a prodigious crop. The Teutons were defeated, and with them their allies, the Ambronis, and now the menace of the Cimbri was what was left. As the battle cleanup goes on, and as Marius and his troops are assembling this giant pile of loot and booty and arms and armor taken from the defeated enemy, Plutarch says horsemen are seen riding up from the distance to Marius and his officers who are in their celebratory mood. And by the way, we have to trust Plutarch for all this stuff because all of the other historians talking about this make it a very short comment, you know. Gaius Marius went to this area in this year, defeated the Teutons in battle. It's Plutarch, who's really more of a biographer than a historian, who goes into depth on this stuff, and hopefully he was working from you know, libraries and records that we don't have anymore. But he says that these horsemen rode up to Marius and informed him of the good news that he'd been elected consul once again in Rome this time for the fifth time. And what's happened over the last several years in Roman history is that the Romans have felt so threatened by enemies, first the Jugurthan guerrillas, and then these tribesmen who were literally going to roll over Rome, that they didn't want to take any chances with untried leadership, so they stuck with the horse that they knew could get the job done, this can-do guy, Caius Marius. But it warps the Roman system to violate the constitutional precepts this way. You don't elect consuls over and over and over again. Marius becomes one of these guys who becomes a sort of popular dictator simply because he's the only one that people trust to deliver them from these terrible threats. And there's still one more on the horizon. The Cimbri. While Marius is celebrating his fifth consulship, 
the other consul at this time period, who's a guy named Catullus, is trying to hold another pass, another entrance into Italy. And that's the one the Kimbries decide to try to push through. Catullus has as one of his subcommanders, Lucius Cornelius Sulla. Sulla was working in Marius's army at this time, but he kept feeling like anything that he did that was creditable was being written off by Marius. Marius probably still jealous, the sources indicate, for what happened in North Africa. So Sullus transfers to Catalyst's force and is doing great, wondrous things over there, the sources say. You know, supplying the troops in wonderful fashion, just being a fantastic officer. But what happens to poor Catalyst is they become the army that the Kimbri decide to go after. They leave Marius alone, not knowing, apparently, of what happened to their brethren, the Teutons, and they attack the pass being guarded by Catalyst. Now, Catalyst and his troops have had time to fortify this area. They station their forces behind a river. They build up, you know, if you think the Roman camp is strong and powerful, imagine something that they've had weeks and weeks and weeks to put together with timbers and all sorts of... They basically have a castle out there in the hills guarding this pass from this threat that's just rolled over all these other Roman armies. And Plutarch tells us what happens right in front of the astonished eyes of Catullus's legionaries. Plutarch says the barbarians were not afraid of the strong defensive position. Quote, The barbarians, however, came on with such insolence and contempt of their enemies that to show their strength and courage, rather than out of any necessity, they went naked in the showers of snow, and through the ice and deep snow climbed up to the tops of the hills, and from thence, placing their broad shields under their body, let themselves slide down from the precipices along their vast, slippery descents. End quote. What Plutarch is saying is that this is an intimidation factor. These barbarians, through no need, simply strip off all their clothes in front of the Romans and run around in the snowdrifts naked as if to say, this doesn't bother us. They take their shields and in an ancient form of like snowboarding, slalom down the hills on them, again, in front of the Romans. This is all part of, you know, the same sort of thing you would see when the Miami Dolphins will go play the Green Bay Packers in the middle of winter and the Packers will all go out on the field in minus five degree temperatures with no undershirts on. It's a way of saying, is this bothering you? It's not bothering us. Plutarch says that when the Kimbri surveyed this strong Roman defensive position behind a river with a little bridge the Romans had built over it and their strong fortifications on the other side, they simply decided to eliminate it. This is Plutarch now talking about the Kimbri. Quote, When they, meaning the Kimbri, had pitched their camp at a little distance from the river and surveyed the passage, meaning the river, they began to pile it up, giant-like, tearing down the neighboring hills and brought trees pulled up by the roots and heaps of earth down to the river, damming up its course, and with great heavy materials, which they rolled down the stream and dashed against the bridge, they forced away the beams which supported it, in consequence of which the greatest part of the Roman soldiers, much affrighted, left the camp and fled. Here Catullus, Plutarch writes, showed himself a generous and noble general, in preferring the glory of his people before his own. For when he could not prevail with his soldiers to stand to their colors, but saw how they all deserted him, he commanded his own standard to be taken up, and running to the foremost of those that fled, he led them forward, choosing rather that the disgrace should fall upon himself than upon his country, and that they should not seem to fly, but following their captain to make a retreat. End quote. What Plutarch is saying is that when the Roman soldiers started running away, 
worried that this would make the Roman people scared and frightened and ashamed and worried. Catalyst grabs his standard, runs to the front of the fleeing soldiers, and makes it look like he's leading them away in an ordered retreat so that the Romans will blame him for being a cowardly general as opposed of worrying that yet another legion has fled in terror from these you know, monstrous beings from the north. Plutarch paints it as a patriotic retreat, I guess you could say. The sources say that the Cimbri began to just lay waste to all the surrounding land, which prompted calls for help, which prompted Caius Marius to arrive on the scene. And he joins with the army of Catullus, and he decides to make a defense against the Cimbric tribesmen. He has to keep them from breaking into Italy, or, you know, Rome's in terrible trouble. That's the threat they've been trying to avoid these several years that all these legions have been going up against these tribes. Don't let them into Italy, and now they're right on the verge, and here comes Marius to save the day once again, seen as the only man who can do it at the time. This is why he keeps getting elected to the consulship. He's the indispensable figure in this story. Plutarch writes that ambassadors were sent from the Cimbri to Marius, and that the ambassadors were talking about their brethren who were going to arrive soon, and if they didn't get what they wanted, the two together would combine and deal with the Romans. Plutarch says, quote, When Marius inquired of the ambassadors who their brethren were, upon saying the Teutons, all that were present, meaning all the Roman officers around Marius, began to laugh, and Marius scoffingly answered them, Do not trouble yourself for your brethren, for we have already provided lands for them, which they shall possess forever. The ambassadors, Plutarch says, understanding the mockery, broke into insults and threatened that the Cimbri would make them pay for this and the Teutons too when they came. They're not far off, replied Marius, and it will be unkindly done of you to go away before greeting your brethren. Saying so, Plutarch writes, he commanded the king of the Teutons to be brought out as they were in chains, for they were taken by the Sequani among the Alps before they could make their escape. This was no sooner made known to the Cimbri, but they with all expedition came against Marius, who then lay still and guarded his camp, end quote. That's one of the greatest moments related in all of Plutarch. And you hope it's real, because the drama's incredible, this idea that the Cimbri would come to him all arrogantly demanding something, and he has, you know, limited time before their brethren arrive in these two German tribes, or whatever nationality tribes, 300,000 fighting men are just going to lay waste to these Romans, as they've done several times already, and Marius, you know, ice water in his veins, the CEO of Rome, Inc., laughs at them, and says, we've already provided permanent ground for your people in the ground. And, uh, oh yeah, I happen to have a few of their prominent people right here in chains. I mean, if he really had them in chains for just that moment, this was a guy with a real flair for the dramatic. What a wonderful story. And then Plutarch goes on to say that the minute that that happens, it's on. And now you get to face the full might of these tribes that just had struck fear into the hearts of Rome for now going on a decade, and the Cimbri appear on the battlefield. Now, the battlefield also contains another important person, our friend Lucius Cornelius Sulla, is at this battle, and apparently had written something about it because Plutarch quotes him in a few cases as a primary participant in this showdown of a fight. This is what Plutarch writes about the beginning of the battle as the two sides begin deploying. Quote, They observed the time appointed and drew out their forces against each other. 
Catalyst commanded 20,300 and Marius 32,000, who were placed in the two wings, leaving Catalyst in the center. Sulla, who was present for the fight, gives this account, saying also that Marius drew up his army in this order because he expected that the armies would meet on the wings, since it generally happens that in such extensive fronts the center falls back, and thus he would have the whole victory to himself and his soldiers, and Catalyst would not even be engaged. He continues, They tell us also that Catalyst himself alleged this in vindication of his honor, accusing in various ways the enviousness of Marius. End quote. What that's saying, ladies and gentlemen, is that Gaius Marius, this hyper-ambitious figure, literally deployed his army to maximize his chances of personally, you know, gaining glory in the battle. Forget about winning the battle against this amazing foe. Plutarch is saying that his ambition was so intense that he's organizing his troops to make sure, aha, if I organize them this way, Catalyst won't get any of the glory because his wing will never come into contact, and my wing will come into contact first, allowing me to have all the glory... I mean, that is conniving for domestic advantage while you're sitting here facing a life-or-death threat on a battlefield. That's amazing. Plutarch continues, quote, The infantry of the Cimbri marched out quietly out of their fortifications, having their flanks equal to their front, every side of the army taking up 30 furlongs. Their horse, that were in number 15,000, made a very splendid appearance. They wore helmets made to resemble the head and jaws of wild beasts and other strange shapes, and heightening these with plumes of feathers, they made themselves appear taller than they were. They had breastplates of iron and white glittering shields, and for their offensive arms every one had two darts, and when they came hand to hand, they used large and heavy swords. End quote. Now, if you believe the sources, one of the things that this battle will actually hinge upon are the weather conditions. And that's always something that's a major variable in warfare. And in this case, Plutarch makes it seem like the weather made all the difference in the world. Because the Germanic or whatever barbarians had come so far south now, they were so close to Italy, that they'd entered a different sort of weather zone. And it was the height of summer. And these people that... 150 years from now, Tacitus will say, grow up in forests that are so dark because the trees all touch at the top of the canopy that they never even see any light growing up, are now in the heat of a Roman summer, even if it's in northern Italy, in the Alps. It's still, to them, extremely hot. And they're on a dusty plain, and the dust starts whipping around, and it goes in the barbarians' faces. And it bothers the Romans too, but according to Plutarch, it's almost an advantage because they can't see very far in front of them. So the huge numbers, he says, of the barbarians can't scare the hell out of them because they can't see them. They can only see the first couple of ranks right in front of them, implying that if they could see how many of the enemy they faced, they would likely do what Catalyst's army had done not that long ago and turn around and flee. The weather conditions begin to weigh on the Cimbri, though. Here's what Plutarch says. Quoting Sulla, by the way. Quote, in the engagement, according to the accounts of Sulla and his friends, Marius met with what might be called a mark of divine displeasure, for a great dust being raised, which, as it might very probably happen, almost covered both the armies. He, leading on his forces to the pursuit, missed the enemy, and having passed by their array, moved for a good space up and down the field. Meanwhile, the enemy, by chance engaged with Catalyst, and in the heat of battle was chiefly with him and his men, among whom Sulla says he was, adding that the Roman 
humans had great advantage of the heat and sun that shone in the faces of the Cimbri, for they, well able to endure cold, and having been bred up, as we observed before, in cold and shady countries, were overcome with the excessive heat. They sweated extremely, and they were much out of breath, being forced to hold their shields before their faces, for the battle was fought not long after the summer solstice, or as the Romans reckon, upon the third day before the new moon of the month now called August. End quote. Now, it's a little hard to follow Plutarch sometimes, because just a moment ago, he had the Cimbri slaloming down frozen hillsides and going naked in the snow showers, and now he's got this heat tearing them down. But remember, they were in the Alps before. Now they've moved towards northern Italy, and they're out of the big mountain passes. So that explains the difference in the weather conditions. For a long time, it was believed that this battle happened on the field of battle where Hannibal first defeated the Romans after coming out of the Alps. There's some disagreement now among historians whether that's the actual site. In any case, it becomes one of the most important battles during this whole time period. Plutarch continues about the battle where he talks about the crucial fighting going on in the center of the battle line, where here the Germans, in order to stand firm, maybe you consider it a pledge with something to hold people to it, he says that the Germans have chained themselves together in the front lines, man after man after man, running a heavy iron chain through each other's belts so that they couldn't flee. He says, talking about the battle going on in the center, quote, Here the greatest part and most valiant of the enemies were cut in pieces. For those that fought in the front, that they might not break their ranks, were fast tied to one another, with long chains put through their belts. But as they pursued, those that fled to their camp, they witnessed a most fearful tragedy. The women, standing in black clothes on their wagons, slew all that fled, some their husbands, some their brethren, others their fathers, and strangling their little children with their own hands, threw them under the wheels and the feet of the cattle, and then killed themselves. They tell of one who hung herself from the end of the pole of a wagon, with her children tied dangling at her heels. The men, for want of trees, tied themselves to some of the horns of the oxen, others by the neck to their legs, so that pricking them on by the starting and springing of the beasts, they might be torn or trodden to pieces." Yet for all they thus massacred themselves, above 60,000 were taken prisoner, and those that were slain were said to be twice as many. End quote. So once again, you see that phenomenon of these tribal women waiting at the far edge of the battlefield. And once the battle is decided, and one side turns and runs back toward their camp, the women do what they did in the previous battle, and they pick up their weapons, and they kill everyone running towards them and then they kill themselves. It's Armageddon as far as these two tribes are concerned. And 150 or so years later, when Tacitus writes his piece about the German peoples, he'll talk about a small remnant of people called the Cimbri living near the Baltic coasts. And he'll point out that these people are not what they once were. They're a small, non-important group of people who were the biggest threat to Rome during this whole age. And the man who destroyed this biggest threat to Rome in an age would be hailed back at the great city like a god. The chant that would rise up in every house when it was time to eat would be, according to Plutarch, to the gods and Marius. The fact that Marius had not won this battle by himself, 
that the other general catalyst played an important role became a bone of contention between the two men. After all, the reason you get to these big positions so you could command these armies is so that you can win these battles so that you can get credit for winning them. Credit became an important point once the battle was over. Rome eventually decided that Marius deserved the credit even though he shared it with Catalyst in the end and the grateful people donated a large percentage of the immense spoils to Marius making him fabulously wealthy. Wealthy enough to own a kingdom of his own Plutarch says. It's only after this threat to Rome's very existence passes that you get a chance to see, and you wonder if Gaius Marius saw it too, the damage that his new military system was going to have on the politics of Rome. Because now that the wars were over, it was time for Marius to make good on his side of the deal with his volunteer army, which was, I'm going to get you the land that you signed up for in the first place. But the problem is you have to go to the Roman government for the land, and the blue-blooded patrician senators are no more excited about giving land reform to Marius's troops than they are about giving land reform to anyone else. So Marius makes a sort of political alliance, and he was never a good politician. Again, like General Patton in this regard, a much better general than politician. He doesn't pick his friends very wisely. He does go to people who are representative of more of the populares, the people's cause, but he lines up with the radicals. And the radicals are becoming more radical every generation. Tiberius Gracchus was kind of radical. His little brother Caius, coming up in a more radical time, was yet more radical. Those two guys, those critical figures in the Roman Republic's history, are the ones who figure out that this tribune of the plebs position in the Roman system is very, very powerful if you'll just use it in ways that earlier people had never thought to do. Well, once the Gracchan brothers open that door, the tribunes who are really radical in the later period see all the possibilities of what you can do with that little chink in the Roman system's armor. And in this period, the guy who's in control of that position and pushing the boundaries is a radical, fiery speaker named Saturninus. This is the guy that Marius allies with because Saturninus says, hey, you lend your credibility and your ambition and your star to my cause and I'll get your troops their land. And Saturninus is allied with a bunch of other sort of popular representatives. They are often championing the cause of the country folk at the expense of the urban folk, of the people at the expense of the aristocratic classes. And Marius supports them when they do things like the Gracchan brothers would do. They lower the price of the subsidized corn in the city, and Marius goes along with it. All this stuff starts to make the Senate panic. And if that wasn't bad enough, Saturninus becomes the first of these Roman radical politicians to realize that it's really, really valuable if you have a paid gang of thugs working for you that can sort of intimidate your opponents or worse. He has bands of Romans running around the city accosting his enemies, and eventually he will kill one of these guys who is running for the tribuneship against him. He'll kill another guy running for consul because he's running against an ally of Saturninus. And when he kills another noble, a famous Roman aristocrat named uh, Memmius, that's the final straw for the Senate. They declare their version of martial law, the same thing they declared when they wanted to kill Tiberius Gracchus, the same thing they declared when they wanted to kill Caius Gracchus, and now the same thing they want to declare when they want someone to handle the Saturninus problem, the problem of radicalism among this latest tribune of the plebs. Who do they have to call out to solve this problem? The consul. Who's the consul? Marius. The Senate and the aristocratic blue bloods who never had any time for this boorish, ruffian, you know, 
lower class guy in their eyes, now called on him to defend their prerogatives. The Senate was always trying to defend what they called liberty. And as some historians pointed out, their version of liberty was sometimes just the right to continue to act the way they were and make the money they were making the way that they were doing things, a preservation of their traditional you know, rights to do what they wanted. And now Marius was called out to defend those rights against the people who were his allies in Rome's politics. But Marius is no revolutionary. He had had to distance himself from Saturninus and his cronies anyway, because once you start using your thugs to murder Roman politicians, a conservative guy like Marius has to pull back a little, and he had. But now the ultimate irony, the Senate, which doesn't like him, calls him out to, you know, deal with his allies who've gotten out of hand. Now the Roman elite wants these allies dead. Some of the people of Rome do too. Instead, Marius bottles them up in a siege-type situation. The water is cut off from them. The ancient sources say they're dying of thirst, but they eventually decide to give up because Marius says they won't be killed. It's like a flag of truce. Saturninus and his cronies and their supporters surrender. The people, you know, who are on the Senate side want them dead and killed right there, but Marius says no. He locks them up in the Senate house for the night to try to figure out what to do with them. And during the night, the people and the supporters of the Senate run up there rip the tiles, the stone tiles, from the ceiling of the Senate House and fling them down into the courtyard below where all of the prisoners are being kept and stone Saturninus and his supporters to death with the tiles of the Senate House. It's sort of an irony, a fatal irony for this period. These Roman politicians, dead on the floor of the Senate, killed by the very tiles torn from the roof, by the very people of Rome and Appian, the ancient historian goes out of his way to point out that three of Rome's most powerful current legislators are lying there dead amidst the other radicals, still wearing on their clothing their insignias of office. The big loser in this whole thing is Marius. The Senate who never liked him still didn't like him. The people who he had coveted the support of the people around Saturninus, the populares of Rome, they don't like him now either because look what he just did. He retires from public life after six consulships in virtual disgrace, which opens the door in that Roman king of the mountain power struggle political system to the next most powerful people out there, including a guy who is dogged the career of Gaius Marius since the sources first start talking about it. A man who would have people eventually break into Marius's tomb so that they could take the bones of the old leader out and scatter them into a nearby river. Lucius Sulla. And if Gaius Marius can be seen as a weapon sometimes in the hands of the poorer, more common people of Rome against the aristocratic, blue-blooded senators then Lucius Cornelius Sulla is the weapon in the hands of the other side. For more hardcore history, go to dancarlin.com. Make sure to do your Amazon.com shopping through the Amazon search window on dancarlin.com. You get the same great Amazon shopping experience, and Dan and Ben get a piece of the action from Amazon for sending you there. In the next edition of Death Rose of the Republic, it's now Sulla's turn to play the role of indispensable man. 
the figure who rides in on a white horse and saves Rome from disaster, and there are disasters looming everywhere. From slave revolts to the rebellion of the Italian allies to the rise of the poison king in Asia, Sulla's going to have his hands full with emergencies, but there are also opportunities to gain glory. The big wild card, of course, is whether an ambition addict like Gaius Marius nursing his private wounds in Rome will allow someone who's already stolen his thunder in the past to do so again. We'll find out what happens. You may already know in part three of Death Rose of the Republic. <laughs>